19-3783, District of Minnesota, Thomas Lissick versus Anderson Corporation. All right, uh, Mr. Sheik, uh, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, my name is Jeff Sheik. I'm representing uh, Mr. Lissick in this matter. Um, this case, if the, if the courts uh, reviewed it, basically comes down, and I'd like to, to focus on uh, claims relating to the whistleblower statute for state under state law, the sexual um, harassment under state law for uh, retaliation, and the Family Medical Leave Act for retaliation. Uh, Mr. Lissick uh, worked for Anderson Company for approximately 18 years. Um, he does not dispute the fact that he did have two prior incidences relating to lockout takeout procedures. It's the third incident which is um, at issue and it's, it's our position that he has created genuine issues of material fact um, and, that the, and that the court should allow him to go to jury on, on these uh, facts. The whistleblower claim is, is the result of uh, an incident that he reported on or about September 14th, 2017. Um, essentially his uh, accusations were in fact supported by the evidence and there were um, new pictures being sent back and forth. Um, so it's our position that, that that's sexual harassment and that uh, shortly thereafter on January 3rd, um, he was put on notice for leave and ultimately terminated on January 11th, 2018. Counsel, did, um, does the record reflect, did your client actually receive those pictures or? It's our, he, he denied that he actually received them. Um, so he did not actually receive those pictures. He just knew of them. Well, and wasn't the situation addressed rather quickly by the company? I mean, I mean, yes, it was. But I mean, he actually reported up approximately 11 employees. They were all um, brought in under an investigation um, and basically all knew that it was Lissick that was reporting that. Um, so it's our position that that was retaliation um, for him reporting those uh, accusations of texting nude pictures of women. women. Could I follow up on the on this? I, I know you're talking about the hostile. I think you're talking about the hostile work environment claim. Um, so I I thought the pra I think there's a I want to ask you if there's a statute of limitations problem. The practices ended according to my notes on September 6, 2017, and the complaint wasn't filed until a year and 12 days later on September 18, 2018. So is that is that hostile work environment part of the claim? Is that is that untimely? And if if not, why? Sure. So it's our position that it is timely. Um, I, I'd refer the court to uh, Green versus Brenner, which is 136 Supreme Court 1769. That's a 2016 um, decision. Um, and then also there's a state case called Turner versus IDS Financial, which is 471 Northwest 2nd 105, which is a Minnesota Supreme Court decision um, from 1991, essentially saying that an employee for her or under discrimination statutes cannot really bring a cause of action unless and until there's been um, substantial adverse action taken against him. I think that's consistent with what the case law should be. Um, and the courts have been fairly reluctant to, at least in my experience, to accept claims unless and until there's been some substantial adverse action. In other words, if he would have brought the claim right away um, after September 6th or whatever, the courts would certainly be asking me, what was the adverse action that occurred, Mr. Sheik? Why didn't anything happen there? Um, you know, uh, and basically, aren't you talking about a retaliation claim here as opposed to um, what Judge Strauss asked you about, which is the hostile work environment? I think it relates back to the hostile work environment. I mean, that's I would agree with the court. That's probably our weakest um, 
uh, case or, or argument um, because of, of the severe and pervasive um, element of, uh, of the sexual harassment claim. But I do still believe that it start, you, and it's the, our position that a plaintiff cannot even bring a cause of action unless and until there's been some adverse action. And so I, I think that does relate back to the September 6th. So we, until we, we can prove that there's been some adverse action, which arguably there wasn't any until uh, January 3rd, um, you know, it's our position that his, his claim was timely and certainly the retaliation claim would be timely because um, the adverse action occurred on January 3rd, 2018. Well, I don't want to belabor this, but isn't in a hostile work environment claim, aren't the, the I think it was new tax and the, and the name calling, wasn't that essentially the adverse action itself? And that's distinguishable from a retaliation claim where you report the sexual harassment and then there's an adverse action that gets taken. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's that's my memory of how Minnesota law works from my time on the Supreme Court. Sure. So, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with the court here, but I, but certainly the courts have been more and more um, focusing on what adverse action has, has occurred. So, I mean, our, our firm won't really even take a case unless there's been a demotion, a reduction in pay, because the courts will consistently say, look, nothing's happened here. And certainly defense counsel in any kind of um, rebuttal letter to our letters indicates, hey, look at nothing adverse happened here, so you don't even have a claim here. And so, I mean, our position is is that the adverse that you can't even bring a claim until the, the adverse action actually occurs, which is January 3rd, 2018, which makes the claim timely. And it's our position that it certainly makes our claim for a retaliation timely for sure. Got any other questions on that, Connors? None for me. Okay. I mean, I guess what, what I like to, I know it, it gets kind of complicated because the focus is going to be on the lockout takeout procedures, which is a requirement from uh, Anderson. And the, the, on this particular machine, um, it's located on one floor and, and then there's a second floor and we actually went out there and observed it. I mean, it's a massive complex. Um, and basically it's our position that Mr. Lissick um, has denied any inappropriate conduct the whole time relating to the third incident. Um, that basically um, the lockout takeout procedures, which are uh, 409 and 530, those procedures, um, I'd ask the court to look at those, and, and I'd ask the court specifically to look at uh, Appendix 530, which is the, that's a picture of the second floor. Um, and basically the, the pedestal's on the left-hand side there, and, and that's the machine that uh, the investigator indicated needed to be um, locked out, tagout. And I, I mean, I went, we went round and round on this issue um, with the investigator and it's our position that she started for Anderson uh, in July of 17 and did this investigation approximately five months after that. Um, so it's our position that she had very, very limited experience and she even admitted that in her deposition testimony. And I'd asked the court to kind of review uh, 504 to, 513, but basically I'm asking her why um, was he terminated? She said that he violated um, not locking out the pedestal as opposed to the master control room, which is lo located on the first floor, which I, to be honest with you, is, the thought would, is what I thought she was going to be testifying to, but she said, no, it was that. And then I went through the, the lockout takeout procedures, which are requirement of, of Anderson. And we went round and round, but basically she said in the lockout takeout procedures, there is nothing in there um, that indicates um, that he has to lockout takeout um, that pedestal on the second floor of the of, of 
uh, number nine. So basically it's our position that, that the investigation um, was less than thorough. And I know council is going to say, isn't it just a good faith belief, but it's our position that, you know, this is similar to Gilio. It's G-I-L-L-O-O-L-Y. And I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. But anyways, it's our position that, that our case is similar to that case. Um, and basically because the investigation was less than thorough and it's our position that was not made in good faith um, and that they put somebody on this who uh, didn't know very much about how the procedures worked and basically, and, and they are complicated procedures um, as far as receptacle number nine is you can't just walk in there and, and, and kind of understand what that what happens on those lockout takeout procedures. Council, is this more, uh, I just want to understand the argument you're making and where it, which, which part of the, the argument it relates to, which is my understanding is nobody is arguing that there wasn't a, a legitimate non-discriminatory reason. It sounds to me like the argument you're making is really about pretext, that they conducted sort of a sham investigation and that therefore the, the, the termination was pretextual as a result of that uh, 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 investigation. Am I right about that? I would agree with that, Your Honor. I mean, I, I would like to focus on the pretext I'm sure the court's aware that the, our, it's our position that the prima facie case for you know the Minnesota Whistleblower Act, the FMLA Act, and the uh, Sexual Retaliation Act that you know th those are very relatively um, not very onerous on the plaintiff. And so I would like to um, you know focus on the pretext because you know it's our position that the the, this, the investigation really was as as the court indicated a sham. Um, they put somebody in charge. Um, that didn't really know the rule and Fitzmorris signed off on he knew about the sexual harassment he knew about the eyewash situation uh, he knew about the fmla requests and so he knew about all this he signed the letter for termination which um is 589 to 590 i do believe i've asked the court to review those documents but that's how we tie in together uh Fitzmorris, um as kind of the, the bad actor in this case and basically um he could have re or he was part of the investigation at least initially and he state stated that uh Lissick denied it um all throughout his all the proceedings so i would also just real quickly like to say that we've created a genuine issue material fact as far as um whether or not the the that he um violated the lockout takeout procedures i mean over and over again cited in the brief with people who had actual knowledge of the situation stated that the, the, there were no lockout takeout procedures that mandated that the uh, um, pedestal be locked out. And even the court, the Honorable Judge Frank indicated that the procedures um, were um, fairly clear to anybody. So when I asked these individual um, employees, um, did this have to be locked out? And they all indicated no. And they you know, I think they were trying to anticipate what I was trying to get at. So we had to go back and forth and round and round as far as whether or not um, the lockout takeout were, were, were uh, in fact violated. But they all indicated, um, at least four of them that worked there that had knowledge of the lockout takeout procedures, that that, that was not required. And there's also a sign, um, and it's, it's uh, in a later part of the appendix, but there's also a sign that says, danger, lockout takeout, you know, you need to be... Uh, needs to be required after this point in time and where the incident occurred is before where Mr. Lissick um, was, was, was standing. So it's our position that, you know, the first part he was simply evaluating um, the machinery um, and going through all the, the machinery parts. 
And then and that's when uh, somebody walked by and indicated that there was an issue. Um, so I'd ask that the court um, focus on the on the retaliation claims. And, you know, it's our position that there was a short period of time, you know, after the, the, the reporting of the sexual harassment, the reporting of the eyewash stations and the FMLA request, it's our position that the FMLA, FMLA requests were in fact instantaneously because it was intermittent. So, um, you know, when they terminated him, he was still in fact on FMLA. Um, Council, so I wanna ask you about that exact point, which gets the causation and the prima facie case of retaliation on each of the, each one of these claims. And my understanding is um, with the exception of the FMLA claim, which was ongoing, we can debate whether it begins at the beginning or the end, but it was ongoing, that there's a substantial time difference. And by substantial, I mean, not in layman's terms, but in terms of legal terms, right? We've said two months, maybe too long to create an inference of causation. Here on someone, we have four or six months. And so is there anything else to suggest that um, any of these um, whistleblower or any of the others, that, that, that those were the cause of the termination other than timing? Because remember, we have, in a lot of these cases, we have two later lockout violations. So I'm just trying to figure out what you have other than timing. Okay, I mean, so I, I agree with the court. I just note for the court's record that, you know, the courts, federal and state, have been kind of all over the place as far as what, what's close enough in time. Certainly, the Eighth Circuit's been a little bit more conservative. Um, but it's the fact, you know, I, I'd like the court to focus on the fact that it's our position that the lockout-tago procedures were not, were not violated. And so, basically, the, the, the credibility of that issue um, is in favor of Mr. Lissick, especially when you view the evidence in the light most favorable to him. Um, and it's our position that um, they also indicated a little bit in, their, in, in the, at least their initial brief in district court that there were some other issues um, with Mr. Lissick relating to throwing away trash and or um, looking at women inappropriately. And that's our position that they've, they've now kind of shifted the reasons. Um, so that's another reason. Um, and there really wasn't an, a true independent investigation. I mean, I think it should, the investigation in my opinion should at least been conducted by Mr. Uh, Fitzmorris. And I think, you know, and this is a second kind of go around for Anderson, which is uh, another decision that was cited by uh, counsel. I believe it's Chinlander, and I might be mispronouncing that, but it's in the brief anyways, and I've rebutted it in the brief. Essentially stating that, you know, the, the reasons for termination were, were not substantiated. Um, and basically because of that, um, you know, the, the claims um, submitted by Mr. Lissick um, should go forward relating specifically to the the Whistleblower Act, the FMLA Act, and the uh, Sexual Retaliation Act. I mean, all the all the employees um, basically knew about everything that was happening um, to Mr. Lixit as, uh, and that's why our, it's our position that they um, retaliated against him. And, and Anderson had the prior case with Mr. with Judge uh, Frank, and you know it's, I think it's a dangerous path to go down to as far as. Um, allowing the, the Anderson to conduct un, you know, not thorough investigations. Okay. I, I see my time's up. I have nothing further unless the court has any inquiries. I do not. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you for your argument. Mr. Will, you may proceed. I think you might still be muted. Can you hear? I can't. I, I think you may still be muted. Judge Kobus, can you hear him? I cannot. 
Uh, it appears, uh, Madam Clerk, that we have a tr we were having trouble with the connection, or or perhaps he's muted, or Mr. Wilk, can you hear me? This is Melissa in the courtroom. You hear me now? Yes, we can. Ah, much better. Thank you. Testing, are you able to hear me, Your Honors? Yes, we are. Very much so. Thank you. I apologize. I uh, may please the court and uh, counsel. My name is David Wilk. I represent Anderson Corporation in this appeal. And uh, Judge Frank properly granted summary judgment on all of Mr. Lissick's then remaining claims, and he did so after the close of discovery. Uh, Judge Frank granted that motion because Mr. Lissick was unable to present evidence, we've heard about some of that already yet today, to substantiate any of his claims. He's appealed uh, as to sexual harassment and as to va uh, various forms of retaliation, and I'll, I'll get to those, I think, in that order. But the undisputed evidence shows that Mr. Lissick was terminated because Anderson reasonably concluded that he violated lockout tagout for a third time. The people primarily involved in that decision, including the investigator, did not know that Mr. Lissick had engaged in any protected activity. The person who assigned the investigator did not know that Mr. Lissick had engaged in any protected activity. So I turn briefly to sexual harassment and the court has identified one of the issues, the statute of limitation issue. I think it's incorrect to say you can't bring a claim uh, until you're terminated. That would suggest you could never bring a claim for sexual harassment if you're never terminated. That can't be the law. The law says you can bring a claim for sexual harassment when you've experienced conduct so severe or pervasive that it alters the terms and conditions of employment. That means adverse action has occurred, whether you've been terminated or not. That issue was resolved decades ago by the United States Supreme Court. So we first have a statute of limitations issue, which I think the courts highlighted in terms of the dates. The second issue is, is there any severe or pervasive activity? Mr. Lipstick was called lipstick in a failed effort to be funny, apparently. And he also heard about, but didn't see, sexually explicit text messages. That is not enough to alter the terms and conditions of employment. And the fact that plaintiff's counsel concedes that he could not have brought a claim back in September of 2017 seems to me to admit as much. The third issue is, and the court has highlighted it already, Anderson's timely and appropriate response. Anderson took prompt remedial action. The person who called him lipstick was told not to do that again. Anderson investigated, investigated the text messages, learned that they were sent by a vendor's employee. That vendor was contacted and told in no uncertain terms, do not send him back. And they didn't. Problem solved. Exactly how the court envisions employers dealing with situations of this sort. So for any one of those three reasons, statute of limitations, lack of severe or pervasive activity, Anderson's timely and appropriate remedial action, the court can and should affirm. Next we have retaliation. 
And it comes in three different varieties, but all three involve the same defects. The three are FMLA, Judge Strauss has pointed out that there's some issues on timing on that. It's requested in approximately April. It's granted. Begins taking it in uh, August, September, October. Then you have um, the eyewash station issue under the Minnesota uh, Whistleblower Act. That is also in September of 2017. And then you have the report of sexual harassment. That portion of the Human Rights Act claim is not barred by the statute of limitations because the adverse employment action as to retaliation was in uh, January, but the, sec the alleged sexual harassment itself started and ended more than one year prior to the lawsuit. So we look at the retaliation claims. They all share the same core problems. No prima facie case, no evidence of pretext, what are we talking about? We're talking about this machine. You've heard some about it. You've read a great deal about it. You've even seen pictures of it. Reciprocator number nine. The purpose of this machine is people take uh, completed patio doors, put them on a large pallet, and put it on a conveyor belt. The conveyors roll into the elevator, drop down the floor, and it comes out a different set of conveyors. And heads from manufacturing on the second floor out to distribution or shipping on the first floor. Well, on January the 3rd, 2018, this machine is not functioning. It's not functioning. And the, one of the people in charge of it, Mr. Hartwick, is down on the first floor and he sees a red light on. Why is the red light important? The red light's important because it tells us there's power coming to the pedestal that holds the control panel. There's power coming to the machine. It's not locked out. The red light means an e-stop button has been activated or pushed. Someone has pushed the e-stop. Mr. Hardwick looks at it. It's a mushroom-shaped button, and he can see that the button on the first floor isn't activated, so he goes upstairs to the second floor. What's going on up there? Comes up to the second floor, and he sees Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns is a loader. He's one of the people who puts finished patio doors on the conveyors. And he believes that Mr. Lissick should have been locked out with a physical lock. Mr. Burns is wrong about that, but he's wrong about it for the right reason. He's concerned about safety and he's concerned about Mr. Lissick. And he points to uh, the pedestal. He points to it and Mr. Hartwick sees him point to it. Hartwick looks at the pedestal, but he's not looking for a physical lock. He's looking for a light and he sees one, which means there's still power coming to the second floor. And he sees Mr. Lissick with the chain guard removed and uh, attempting to fix the chain. Now, I asked Mr. Lissick at his deposition on page 167 of the record, and I said, because the one thing, and we may not agree on much today, Mr. Lissick, but the one thing we agree on is that when you remove that chain guard, you have to be locked out, period. Answer. Correct. So Mr. Hartwick knows this. He believes Mr. Lissick is out of bounds. He sees Lissick with a chain guard removed. He sees an elevator on the second floor, which means the very first step of lockout tagout has not been achieved. And he sees a light on the pedestal. He reports it to Mr. Fitzmorris. 
Lissick's boss. It's Morris sends this to Mr. Wire, his new boss. Wire is new to this situation. He doesn't know about eyewash stations and text messages. He doesn't know about FMLA, and he sure doesn't know about the nickname Lipstick. He says, I've got a guy named Lissick on my team, and he's been spotted potentially violating lockout tagout. Who's Mr. Lissick? And Mr. Wire pulls Mr. Lissick's file, and he sees that Mr. Lissick has two prior violations. Two prior violations. So Mr. Uh, Wire contacts his HR person, not the person who did the investigation in September about texts, a new one, a different one, because it's Wire's HR person. Her name is Monique Romain. And he asks her to investigate. And he says, if you conclude that he's done this for a third time, I'm going to recommend termination. He does that without knowing anything about about alleged protected activity. Counsel, what about opposing counsel's uh, point that this is a sham investigation, that um, this Monique um, was not experienced enough to understand what was going on here, and so it was, just, it was basically a fraud, that it was predetermined that this is how it was going to come out? And there's no evidence of that. That's an argument of counsel, but there's no evidence of that whatsoever. She has a master's degree in HR. She's done this for a good bit of time. She's conducted other investigations. Has she ever investigated recent number nine and lockout? I don't believe so. But that's not the standard. The standard is not whether she conducted an investigation subjectively uh, acceptable to Mr. Lissick or me or anybody else. The issue is, did she conduct a retaliatory investigation? Did she conduct an investigation with an eye toward retaliating? And the answer is no, and we know that from undisputed evidence, Your Honor, because she doesn't know to retaliate. She doesn't know there's whistleblowing that supposedly occurred. She doesn't know there's sexual harassment reporting that occurred. She doesn't know anything about FMLA by Mr. Lissick. She could not have retaliated if she wanted to. And I was surprised to hear counsel say, well, why didn't they have Fitzmorris investigate? He said that moments ago. Can you imagine if Fitzmorris had investigated? He's the one person who knows these things. And he's not involved in the investigation. And if he were involved, we would have heard a different argument about that. So I appreciate the argument about Shannon investigation. I understand that argument, but there's no evidence in this case. What, we, what that really reduces down to, I believe, Your Honor, is an argument that we disagree. We disagree with him, with, with her uh, findings. But why disagree? He admits that the chain guard's off. He should be locked out. Hartwick reports seeing a red light. Hartwick reports seeing an elevator. He knows nothing about protected activity. He can't possibly be in on the sham if he wanted to be. And then when Mr. Lissick is confronted by it, uh, Appendix 364, he writes, evaluating machine, did not lock out, e-stop. E why, why is that important? It explains that there was a time, even according to Mr. Lissick, when he only activated the e-stop. That explains his comment, Lissick's comment, it explains why Mr. Hartwick saw a red light and explains why Ms. Romaine came to the unremarkable conclusion that he violated lockout tagout for a third time.
Well, yeah. suppose though, and I know that you disagree with this, but suppose though that she's wrong, that he didn't actually, that there's some evidence in the record that, she, that he didn't actually violate lockout procedures. Would that change the case here or would, do we defer to whatever the investigator finds? It would not, it would not change the case, Your Honor. The court, this court has held repeatedly and Judge Frank applied this court's law that if the issue, and I'll, I'll, I'll cite a few of those cases, and, and the court, I'm sure, is familiar with them, but you have the Cormark case. <clears throat> the key question is not whether the stated basis for termination actually occurred, but whether the defendant believed it to have occurred. So what Mr. Lissick needs to show is not that Anderson was wrong. He needs to show that Anderson was wrong and knew it was wrong and did it anyway in order to retaliate. And he has no evidence of that. The uh, McNary uh, case, the relevant inquiry is not whether McNary actually violated company policy. And then last year, the Brookshire grocery case, the central question in determining if termination is proper is not whether the employee actually engaged in prohibited conduct, but whether the employer believed so in good faith. And so I, I, I don't agree with the premise that, that he didn't do it. I think it's likely he did, and it's likely that explains his comment in his own uh, writing. But, but let's give him the benefit of that doubt under the standard, Your Honor. Let's give him the benefit of that doubt, because he, he does deny it under oath. It's not relevant. It's not relevant unless he can go steps beyond that and show that Anderson was not in good faith or Anderson knew he didn't do it, and that is Anderson's pretext. Simply saying you didn't do it tees up the pretext argument, but it doesn't accomplish the, the, the pretext argument. And so uh, our view is no uh, prima facie case exactly as Judge Frank found. No prima facie case, no causal connection, you need more than timing. In this case, you have less than timing. How on earth do you have less than timing, you wonder? You have less than timing in this case because Mr. Lissick violated lockout tagout and admitted doing so at the end of September after the protected activity. If Anderson was out to get him and if Fitzmorris was out to get him, they would not have failed to do it at the end of September immediately after his protected activity. So we have less than, you have less than timing in this case, not more, no prima facie case. The court declines to reach that question. You have a legitimate non-retaliatory reason for termination and you have no evidence of pretext, none. Not a sham investigation, not cat's paw, not arguing with the investigator, not simply denying the conduct, none of that does, none of that carries you past the burden under, under this court's decision that Judge Frank carefully applied. Uh, and with that, I will sit down and listen to the remainder of the argument. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Welk. Uh, Madam Clerk, my understanding is that Mr. Sheik does not have any rebuttal time remaining. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Sheik, uh, if you have something burning you would like to say, I'm willing to add 30 seconds of time, um, but feel free to rest on what you've said already. 
All right, we will assume uh, that Mr. Sheik does not want any additional time. Uh, so thanks to both counsel uh, for your argument. Oh, there you are, Mr. Sheik. Did you want to take an, another 30 seconds to respond? No, I'm good, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for their arguments. Uh, the case is submitted and an opinion will be issued in due course. Thank you.